in from the highways and byways out there. All right, well, this morning we're going to try something new. And instead of singing the song, we're not going to rely on the melody. We're going to just think of the melody and say the words of each period of Old Testament history, okay? So you have to kind of use a different part of your brain, I think, when we do this. But let's try it. You ready? Okay. Here we go. Creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, sign. Now the names, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees. All right, it's getting better. This is a good week. That's great. All right, well, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, help us this morning to look into your word and to explore the grand story of your redemptive work as it carries through to the great King David. And we pray that we would see something of a glimpse of our greater king, the greater son of David, who came and was Emmanuel, God with us, and has now ascended to his throne and been coronated king of the ages. And we worship you, Lord Jesus. So may our time of study this morning be an overflow of worship. May it be our reverently coming before your word, listening to this story again and letting it affect our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this period finds us transitioning from the period of the judges to the period of the kingdom. As we saw last week, the very last verse of the book of Judges is a rather ominous assessment of that period. Judges 21, verse 25 said, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, this is not a good day. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And that's connected, in this verse, that's connected to the fact that Israel lacked a king. In other words, the implication is that if Israel had a godly king, maybe things would be different. Uh, Stephen Dempster is an Old Testament scholar, and he writes the following, Israel is in need of lasting kingship instead of a temporary judge. And the parade of judges demonstrates a need for a permanent righteous leader. Now, you might be thinking Israel already had a permanent righteous leader. Israel already had a king. God was Israel's king. This is a theocracy, right? I don't know why this keeps popping. Do I just need to move it away from my mouth more? Maybe that'll help. We'll see. But Israel, and that would be true. Israel did already have a king, but that didn't mean that God wasn't going to install a king to the throne of Israel, a king who would sit on a throne that you could knock on, a physical human king. God had intended to give them a king. If you remember something that was brought up, Nick Missios brought this up in the period of the Exodus, there's this really important pattern that's already been established, and that is that God saves his people using one of their own, right? That has been happening throughout history at this point. 
Notice that God has not been rescuing his people, if you will, directly. He's been using human mediators. He's been rescuing them through human mediators. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Joshua brought the people into the promised land. Samson conquered the Philistines. God was using these human mediators to accomplish his rescuing and redeeming work. And so that has been characteristic. The pattern of God saving his people using one of their own continues. The problem was that all of these heroes throughout Old Testament history were flawed heroes and their victories were only temporary. So if we climb into the Old Testament narrative, the the flow of the Old Testament story, we almost get the feeling that our country has on the eve of a new presidency, Um, at least for those who have voted that particular president in, is this is the day. Finally, the deficit will be taken care of. Finally, the troops are coming home, right? Finally, all of these, these problematic issues in our country's life are going to be dealt with because our man is in is in the president's office he's in the oval office and now we're going to see everything change and we those who have voted that person in labor under that illusion for a few months until reality sets in again and that happened for israel time and time again gideon has risen gideon is our judge and we've seen victory or samson has slain a thousand philistines with the jawbone of a donkey these are great days for israel but as A leader rises, the nation rises, and as a leader fades or a leader falls, the nation falls. And there are these constant upheavals and letdowns that are going on throughout the history of Israel. And and so at the end of the day, Moses was great, but he's dead in Deuteronomy 34. Joshua was great, but he's dead in Joshua 24. Samson did some awesome work, but he's dead in Judges 16. So the conclusion that we're left with after hundreds of years of these cycles is we're going to need a better leader. We're going to need a better and enduring Moses, a better and enduring Joshua, a better and enduring priest, a better prophet. And and at the end of the day, even though David is about as good as it gets in Israel's history, at the end of the day, we're still going to need a better and enduring king. David himself falls. David fails to fully accomplish and bring in the reign of God, the righteous reign of God. And so Evan showed us last week that the close of the book of Ruth ends basically with the author of Ruth drawing a family tree. And the last name in that family tree is the main character in the next two books of the Bible, 1st and 2nd Samuel, namely David. So we come to 1st Samuel, if you can turn there. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And and we find that 1 Samuel doesn't open with the main character of 1 and 2 Samuel. It doesn't begin with the birth of David the king. We come to chapter 1 and, and what we find is a woman weeping. And this is the wife of Elkanah. Her name is Hannah. And she's weeping because she's barren. She cannot have children. And and she's one of Elkanah's two wives, and the other wife can have babies left and right. And this is Penina. And not only can Penina have children, whereas Hannah can't, but Penina is rubbing this in Hannah's eye and agitating Hannah, gloating over 
Hannah. In First and Second Samuel, if they are anything, I, I trust that we'll see this this morning, if they are anything, they are books about reversals, about these unexpected twists of providence, that, that God has his way, man has his way, and God defies man's ways. God does not exalt the mighty, he exalts the lowly. And God brings down the mighty. God breaks the bow of the mighty and lifts the poor from the ashes and seats them with the princes. That's the way of Samuel. All throughout these books, we're going to hear that, that kind of theme echoing through. And it begins right here in chapter 1. Here's, here's a twist. Godly Hannah is barren. And boastful, proud Penina is fertile. And then... God, then there's a priest named Eli in chapter 1, and this priest who's supposed to be godly rebukes this woman who's praying. He rebukes her because he says, she, he accuses her of being drunk, and she's innocent. He rebukes her where she's innocent, and Eli, this priest, is going to lose his priesthood because he refuses, ironically, to rebuke his own sons who are wicked. So there are these constant twists, these ironies throughout uh, the books of Samuel. Hannah conceives that day. She leaves the presence of the priest, and she conceives, and in time, she has a baby boy, and she names him Samuel, meaning God hears. God heard her prayer in the presence of that priest that day. God heard her, and there are these three poems throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that happen at the beginning and the middle and the end, and these poems are all about divine reversals, the ironic, unexpected twists of God's providence, the ways of God with his people. And we might title them this way. They're not titled, obviously, but they underscore God's way of salvation. The first poem we meet in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, and it's by Ruth, and we might call it the feeble bind on strength. You can hear the, the reversal there. And then the beginning of 2 Samuel, the mighty have fallen by David. That's at the very beginning of his kingship. And then at the end of 2 Samuel, Another poem by David called, that we might call, You Rescued, For They Were Too Mighty For Me. And they each highlight these, these di divine reversals. God exalts what man views as weak. God brings down what man regards as mighty. And so Baron Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, gives birth to a prophet of God. Not only that, she gives birth to the last and greatest judge in Israel, the godly man. Not only that, maybe most notably, she gives birth to a kingmaker. That is what Samuel is. Samuel is a kingmaker. He is a flask of oil, and he makes kings in, in this book of 1 Samuel. All right, so Hannah's poem, one of the things that you might notice in Hannah's poem, if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, is Hannah's poem stirs up an ancient memory. If you remember Genesis 3, the fall of, and then there's this promise about a, the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the enemy of God's people. And Hannah's poem ends on this kind of note. There's this reference to the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Sorry about that. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Yes, she said king, but no, we are not in the kingdom era. Technically, 
at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we are still in the era of the judges. Samuel's going to be the last judge who anoints the first king. So technically, we're in the judges period. What's she doing talking about a king? Israel hasn't even asked for a king yet. They're going to do that under Samuel, who's a baby right now when she's writing this poem. So we already see gesturing in the direction that God is going to establish, indeed wants to establish, a king in Israel. And there's something prophesied about this coming anointed king who would break the adversary into pieces. But as was the case with Abraham, there's going to be a false start. There's a false start. In, in one respect, the whole book of 1 Samuel is the story of a false start. You remember Abraham's false start? God comes to Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'm going to bless you. And Abraham waits. He believes God, and then he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then Sarah comes, and they start doubting, and she says, why don't you try something with Hagar? I think I'm the problem here. God certainly wants to give you a son, but apparently it's not through me. I'm the problem. Try Hagar, my servant. And Abraham obliges, and he, and he uh, conceives with Hagar, and she gives birth to Ishmael. Now, is Ishmael the child of promise that God promised to Abraham earlier? No. So God comes back and clarifies. No, no, no. I never intended for you to use your ingenuity, Abraham. I told you to trust me, and I'm going to do an awesome work. And Abraham's response is, but Sarah is barren. We are powerless to have children. Exactly. That's exactly right. The ways of God, the, the unexpected twist, this is God's way, these divine reversals so that God might be glorified and we can't look at man and say, oh, well, of course. I mean, look at Abraham and Sarah, these strapping young people. They have this strapping young boy, and he's going to raise up, right? Kings in Israel are going to come out of him eventually. All that, but there's a false start in Israel because they hear the word that there's going to be an anointed one, a king who will sit on the throne, but they get antsy waiting for that king. And they react too quickly. Rather than waiting for God to fulfill his promise, they ask for a, cre a king prematurely. And, and you can see how this plays out if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we'll just be walking through various places. We might not necessarily read all these passages, but you can just have it open and we'll be flipping. You can look at the headings on, your, on the page in your, your Bible there. So Israel goes out to battle in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And they go to battle against the Philistines, and they lose. They lose their most treasured possession. And by that, I don't mean the many sons of Israel who have died on the battlefield. I mean the Ark of the Covenant. They have lost their most treasured possession. This is a, this is a very challenging day for, for Israel. What happened there was they're battling against the Philistines, and they're losing the fight. And they treat God's Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot, like a talisman. They said, we're losing the fight. Bring out the ark. Because if the ark, if, if that ark is in its proper place, that's the throne of Yahweh. If we bring the throne of Yahweh, we will suddenly gain victory over the Philistines. And what they actually did was they didn't gain anything. They lost the ark. The ark was captured and taken away. And so we find actually that Samuel's first prophetic word, as a boy, Samuel shares his first prophetic word with Eli the priest. Your sons are going to die your priesthood is over. It's not the kind of word you want to share with somebody, but that's Samuel's very first word, and that word comes true this day. Both of Eli's sons are dead on the field of battle. Word comes back to Eli, back in the hometown. Word comes back to Eli. Your sons are dead. 
His face drops. The ark has been captured. He falls down, breaks his neck, and dies. And then word comes to Eli's daughter-in-law. Her husband is dead. Her brother-in-law is dead. Her father-in-law is dead. And she names her boy. She gives birth to a boy, and she names her son Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. This was a dark, dark day in Israel's history. They lost that symbolic reminder that God is present with his people. And now, by all accounts, the glory of God has departed from Israel. He is no longer with his people. So the Israelites were wrong in thinking that the ark of God was a guarantee of their military victory. But if the Philistines at the end of the day of this battle thought that the ark of God was just a box, well, they are soon to be relieved of that illusion because they bring the ark back and they put it in the temple of Dagon, their god, the god of the Philistines, and they put it in the temple and they come back the next day and Dagon is bowed before God. He is face down on the ground before the ark of God. And they think, surely this is a coincidence. They prop back up their God, ironically. They prop him back up and stand him there. And they come back the next day and he's got no hands and he's got no head. Dagon has been decapitated (laughs) by the presence of God. And, And this is going to be something that continues to be a problem for them. So they move the ark somewhere else. And wherever they move the ark, plagues break out. And eventually they say, get this thing out of here. Send it back to its home. It doesn't want to be around us. We don't like what's happening with this thing. And so they send it back. And and Israel gets it back in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. You can see that happen. From that day, the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Samuel's tenure is, is remarked upon here in chapter 7. It was, these were good days for Israel. The days of the reign of Samuel were, were very good days for Israel. Look at verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. All right, so that's kind of the post-game review on what happened under Samuel's leadership in Israel. But, but at the end of Samuel's life, we discovered that his sons are not walking in the ways of the Lord. They're not, they don't resemble their father in any way. And the people see that, and they say, don't anoint your sons to be judges in Israel. Instead, why don't you do this? Why don't you give us a king? We want a king, and we want one now. And here's the reason we want a king, because we want to be like the other nations. And so they ask for a king. But but the kingdom period of Israel was not an afterthought on God's part. And it was not merely him acceding to their wishes. God kind of saying, okay, all right, you keep asking here. I'll give you, I never intended to ever put a king on the throne of Israel, but since you've asked and asked and asked, I'm going to go ahead and give you a king. It's not merely that God is is doing that. It was part of God's original plan to sit someone on the throne 
of Israel. And you can see that back in Genesis. The promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 6 says, Your name shall be Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, which didn't happen until the Exodus. He never saw that. I will make you into nations. And kings shall eventually come from you. And then Numbers 24, this is written in the period of the Exodus. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. I see him now, but not, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter is the, the instrument of kingly reign. A scepter shall come out of Jacob and out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Look at this comment from James Hamilton. It was prophesied that Israel would have a king. So the desire for a king is not itself evil. Let me read that again. The desire for a king is not itself evil. The evil lies in the fact that rather than desiring a king through whom Yahweh will exercise his power and authority, the people reject Yahweh. Yahweh knows the heart, and his analysis of human motivation is declared to and through the prophet Samuel. So Israel wanted a king for the wrong reasons. And Samuel interpreted their asking for a king as personal rejection. And God clarified for Samuel, Samuel, it's not, it's not you. They are rejecting me. They don't want me to rule over them. And so God, at this point, says, give them a king. God leads Samuel to anoint a man named Saul. So they don't want God as their king. They reject God as their king. But this rejection is kind of like Joseph's brother's rejection. It's the kind of rejection that's going to play right into the sovereign plan of God. This is a part of God's sovereign plan. He is working invisibly. He is working in his providence to bring about his plan. So God leads Samuel to anoint a man named Saul. Now, if we read Genesis 49, and we will in just a moment, there's something that's not right about this first king. Something wrong with Saul's bio. Jacob was prophesying to each of his sons in Genesis 49. That's what the context is of Genesis 49. Jacob is at the end of his life, and he's prophesying to one after another of his sons. And he, he says to Judah this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. All of the kingship motifs of Scripture have everything to do with conquering and dominating the enemy. So that's, that's what this is all about. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. <laughs> From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter kingdom somewhere out in Israel's future is a kingdom and a scepter the scepter shall not depart from who Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples now look at first Samuel chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 there was a man of Benjamin where was he from the tribe of Benjamin he ain't from the right tribe. 
this guy who's about to be anointed king is, has the wrong lineage. He's in the wrong family tree. We know that from verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Nobody looked the part more than Saul. This doesn't fit the reversals theme that we've already heard from Hannah. God works in ways. God looks on the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. That's going to be running through this whole narrative. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And we had heard hundreds of years ago in the period of the patriarchs that the scepter would not depart from Judah. The scepter, the king's staff, was going to be placed into the hand of someone related not to Benjamin, but related to Judah. And, and not only that, it would be placed in the hands of the tribe of Judah, and it would never be taken out of the hands of the man from the tribe of Judah. And you also, again, just note how the text highlights Saul's family wealth, his background, his height. His, it goes into all these details. It's like, what is it doing? Referring to all the, you know, why is it giving us a full portrait of what Saul looks like? Well, the, the idea there is no one's going to be surprised if Saul mounts the throne of Israel. When Saul becomes king in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Saul is presumptuous and disobedient in 1 Samuel 13. And Saul is informed that his dynasty is over in 1 Samuel 13, three chapters after he was installed as the king. And basically, the rest of this entire narrative is the story of reversals. It's the progressive fall of mighty Saul, and it's the exaltation of a servant shepherd boy who looks like a king. David is anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16. He isn't on the throne yet, but for the rest of the book, David and Saul are perfectly reversed in terms of whose actions are becoming of the king of Israel. And you can see that when you read through this book. And the role of the king was to, first of all, to walk in righteousness before God, which is why Saul was deposed, why Saul's kingship was taken away. He presumed upon God. He failed to obey a very simple instruction that came from Samuel. And he failed to obey it, and he was ever the pragmatist. And his, he saw himself in a difficult place, and he couldn't be patient and wait for Samuel until he offered a sacrifice, and that's when Samuel arrived, and he said, why did you offer the sacrifice? I told you to wait for me. God told you through my prophecy to wait for me, and then I would offer the sacrifice. Saul, your dynasty is finished. Well, so the king has got to be humble before God's word obedient to God. He's got to love God's law. He's got to hang on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so he's walking in righteousness before God. It's also his job to protect the people. It's also a part of his role to be zealous for God's name in Israel. That's a part of this task in this role. He's, he's called to ward off idolatry. So that's the role of the king. But when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we hear God's enemy taunting his people and blaspheming his name 
Saul seems quite comfortable with this. The king of Israel sits on his throne passive while the nation of the Philistines blasphemes through the mouth of Goliath. And David has simply come to serve. He hasn't come for, to fight. He's come to serve his brothers. He's brought food so he can feed them and give them things that they need to sustain them for the battle. And he hears this enemy, this giant taunting God and blaspheming God. And he says, what in the world is up with that? What, what is the king doing sitting down when this giant is blaspheming the name of God? Somebody shut him up. And David, this boy, looks like a king. He sounds like the king of Israel. He cannot understand why everybody's hiding behind the, the embattlements of Israel when God is being called on the carpet to fight. And it's David who comes. He comes before the king, and he says, can I go and fight the giant? And Saul, again, ironically, Saul says, Sure, have a go at it. And ever the pragmatist, he says, you probably should put this armor on. And David tries the armor on, and it's, it's too bulky, and he can't get around. And so, again, with the, the theme of reversals, he goes out to fight by shedding his armor. He takes armor off, and he goes and grabs something that makes no sense to the human mind. He goes and grabs a few rocks to fight a man who has the head of his spear is 15 pounds alone. He takes a few rocks in his hand and he goes and stands before Goliath. And Goliath stands there as the anti-God. He stands there representing, really, nothing short of the offspring of the serpent. Touting his strength. And he's mocking David's size. He's mocking David's weaponry. And one remembers 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10 from Hannah, where she says, For not by might shall man prevail. Mm. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Now, where's the, where's the king of Israel, King Saul? Broad-shouldered, tall, mighty. Saul has slain his thousands. Warrior Saul is sitting on the throne, and a boy approaches the giant in the valley. And we read these wonderful words in 1 Samuel 17 verse 45 the Philistine says to David in verse 44 come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field then David said to the Philistine you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin right? it makes sense that you could destroy people with those kinds of things but this is the book of reversals <laughs> you come with all this weaponry Here's how I come. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth, this is not so that David can put his hero badge on in front of Israel. He says, the reason I'm going to do this to you, and I'm going to chop your head off, the reason I'm going to do this is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Boy, he sounds like a king. He's zealous for God's name, and that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Does that harken back to Hannah's prayer? He saves not by might, by swords and spears, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. If you want to spot the king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he is ironically not the one on the throne. He's the one with Goliath's head in his hand. He's the one with his foot on the face of the giant. This is the great king of Israel whom God is going to install on the throne. This is the one from Judah. The scepter will not depart. Another irony flows out of this. The, the, David's greatest enemy from 1 Samuel 17 onward is not any Philistine. It's Saul himself. The king of Israel is hunting the true king of Israel, chasing him down. It's not Goliath's spear. Saul throws spears at David. And that's the story for the rest of this book. Saul accidentally falls into, the, into David's hands on more than one occasion. Remember that? He finds himself asleep in a cave, and David is right there. David is so close that in order to convince Saul of the mercy that he's taken on Saul, try to convince Saul to, to turn around and change his ways of relating to David, he tears a piece of Saul's clothing off and then he moves a long way off and he says, I was right next to you. I could have had you. God had given you into my hands, but I had mercy on you. David, again, he, his actions are becoming of the king of Israel. It's not about vengeance, personal vendettas. He is loyal to the king who is still on the throne. David is the one who belongs on the throne, but throughout this book, he is really, if, if you read the narrative, he's really the suffering servant. David foreshadows Jesus Christ in, in two ways. David's life, perhaps we could look at it this way. David's life in 1 Samuel foreshadows Christ's first coming. Uh, and David's life in 2 Samuel, sitting on the throne, foreshadows Christ's second coming. So if you follow David's narrative in the first book of 1 Samuel, he looks like a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is the enemy of the state. He is hated by his own people. He is betrayed by his own people. In 1 Samuel, in fact, something very interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, David saves the city of Kilah. He is in refuge in the city of Kilah. Saul doesn't know where he is, but Saul's been hunting him all these many days. And he's taken refuge in the city of Kilah. And the Philistines come against Kilah. And David conquers them, beats them out of Kilah, saves the city of Kilah. And then word comes to Saul. David is in Kilah. And David finds out that Saul is headed to Kilah. And David goes before the Lord in prayer. And he says, Lord, will these people whom I just saved deliver me over into the hands of Saul to be killed? Will the people I have just saved turn me over to death? And God's word to him, I believe it was in verse 12, is they will. David is foreshadowing something here. The very people that he saved will betray him and turn him over to death. Hannah's poem of reversals is ringing true over and over. God triumphs over evil through suffering. God protects the humble. And this brings us to the end 
of 1 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan, David's closest companion, are both dead on the field of battle. The Philistines take the head of Saul back to their people, and Saul's corpse is hung on the walls of Beth Shan. It's a tragic, tragic end of this book. And then we come to 2 Samuel. David is informed of Saul's death in chapter 1, and he writes a poem. It's the second poem that forms the structure of this entire narrative. And he laments the death of Saul and of Jonathan. And this, this poem hearkens Hannah's prayer. 2 Samuel 1.27 How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David is anointed king of Israel in chapter 5 and he takes the city from the Jebusites and that's the city of Jerusalem and now Jerusalem it was Shiloh before Jerusalem is now going to become the headquarters, the center the capital city of Israel, Zion the city that would be called the city of David and David's first official act once he's gotten the Philistines off their backs and taken the city of Jerusalem is go and bring the ark. This is David's number one priority. Now that the Philistines are off our backs, I want the ark and I want it in the capital city. I don't want it in a storage closet in Kiriath Jerim. Saul was content to live miles away from the ark of God, from the representation of God's presence among his people. And Saul had headquarters, the kingdom, everything's in Shiloh except the ark. And David said, it cannot be. This is the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, and the ark belongs here. Why? Because God is the center of this nation. God is the king of this nation, and therefore God's throne, the ark, should be in Jerusalem. And he doesn't just send some delegation to go get it. He himself goes to bring the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And if you had looked from the city that day and you saw that parade coming to the gates of Jerusalem, you would have seen a vast procession. You would have seen the ark in the center and you would have seen the king dancing with all his might all his might. He cast off all kingly dignity. And there's the ark, and there's the king cutting the rug next to the ark of the covenant. And he dances his way all the way to the city gates. And then he writes a poem about this moment where the ark comes to the gates of Jerusalem. And that poem, that song is found in the Psalms. Psalm 24 should sound familiar. And it's a celebration of the ark coming back to the homeland, coming back to the great city. Lift up your heads, O gates, they call from outside. Oh, I love this. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? That the king of glory may come in. And he doesn't mean himself. He means God. The ark is coming into the city. Who is, he hears calling over the walls. Who is this king of glory? Identify yourself. You want to know who this is? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And 
thus the ark of God comes into the city of David and God's throne is in his place among his people. David wasn't finished. As as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he calls Nathan. He gets up to his headquarters and he picks up the phone, so to speak, and calls Nathan and says, come, we've got to talk. It's not enough that the ark is in the city of Jerusalem. I want to build a temple. I want to build a vast and glorious temple for the throne, for the throne of God. God needs a temple here in Jerusalem. I live in this beautiful house, and the ark of God is in a tent, and so let me build a temple for the name of God. And this brings us to the dynasty and eventually to the downfall. This brings us to one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It's akin to Genesis 12. Massive moment in in the patriarchal period, and this is a massive moment. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build a house for God. Another surprising reversal. The God who deserves a glorious house says no and instead promises to build a house for David. And by house, he doesn't mean a literal house. David already had a house. He meant a dynasty. He was promising David. He was basically saying, Genesis 49 was about you, David. I'm going to put this scepter in your hands and it will not depart from your house forever. You will have offspring. And it says here in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled, God says, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. That offspring term just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Your offspring, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, now the offspring of David, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So offspring has happened three times. The offspring of the woman, and the promise is he's going to be a serpent crusher. The offspring of Abraham and the promise is you're going to have children, you're going to have land, and your offspring is going to be a blessing to all nations. And then there's a promise here to David, and the promise is a promise of a kingdom, a promise of a son who reigns on a throne that lasts forever, an eternal throne, which can be taken in two directions. It either means that David's throne in Israel, literally that throne that was in Jerusalem, would always be occupied. Someone would always be sitting on that throne who was related to David, and that the succession would continue for thousands and thousands of years, for generation after generation. It either meant that, or it meant that eventually a son of David would rise to the throne, and he would rule eternally. And once we read the rest of the biblical story, we find out that's the one. That's the one that happened. And we'll discover when we get to the period of the exile that what caused such dismay to God's people in the Old Testament is when they looked after the Babylonian captivity and they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the entire city, and they saw the broken down throne of David. And they thought, surely this day could never come because God made a promise to David. Yes, he made a promise to David, and yes, he makes good on that promise to David, and in our period in history, has made good on his promise to David because David's son is on his throne now. He is reigning now, and he will come, and he will put that throne on the earth, and it will be a physical kingdom as far 
as the land stretches. That promise has been fulfilled. Now, if only that were the end note, this promise to David about the glory of the kingdom going on everlasting into the future. But, but that's not the end note of this book. David sins grievously with Bathsheba, murders her husband Uriah. He falls in many different ways, fails to be faithful to God, and God disciplines him severely. And David's family is an absolute mess. It's worse than any reality show on TV. It, it, it's, it's replete, comes, included, incestuous rape, murder, attempts on the part of his own sons to seize the throne. So sad. You read Psalm 3, and read it in light of what's happening in that context. David is praying. He has to be praying with tears in his eyes. Lord, get my enemy off my back. Strike the teeth of the wicked. And the teeth of the wicked happen to belong to his own son, Absalom heartache of this mess of a family behind David. And this brings us to the end of 2 Samuel. Many more Philistines are dead. Some from David's own household are dead. And David is a weary old man who's incapable of going out to battle. And the writer concludes these stories from the lives of Saul and Samuel and David with this poem, which had been written earlier by David, I've included just some selections from 1 Samuel 22. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. This sounds just like the beginning. Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. That's what a king does. He protects his people. He brings down the enemy. They fell under my feet. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like mire in the streets. You exalted me above those who rose against me. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And what's been true of other periods of Old Testament history is true here as well. There is an already not yet fulfillment to the promises made to the patriarchs and the promises made to David. There is a sense in which this is the golden age. God's people are in his place under his rule and blessing. The golden age of Israel, this may come as a surprise, lasts only 80 years. Almost everything you read in the entire Old Testament finds Israel in a very bad place. Enemies on every side, dominating, owning them, subjugating them, doing whatever they want to do. Eighty years is a little slice of heaven in the Old Testament. And it's under the rules of David and, and Solomon. But as we'll see, Solomon's rule is going to bring greater peace and prosperity than the kingdom has ever known. But Solomon is going to turn the nation toward idolatry. And then everything falls. We'll see next week the divided kingdom. And we're left at the end of 2 Samuel once again to conclude we're going to need a better king. We're going to need a better and enduring David. Which brings us to our last point. Jesus shall reign. Kingly expectations, the story of the New Testament and beyond. I've changed some of the order of these verses. 
So we come to the opening words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and Jesus is identified. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the son of David. That should tell you something about him. He's the son of Abraham. That should also tell us something about him. You know, if we could get introduced to the son of Mozart, we would expect him to be a musician, wouldn't we? If we could get introduced to the son of Da Vinci, we would expect him to have prodigious artistic abilities. Well, what would we expect if we found out that Jesus was the son of David? Having read the story of David and what David did, even right there in that closing poem, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I mean, he sounds so violent, doesn't he? I consumed them. I thrust them through so they didn't rise. They fell under my feet. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like mire in the streets. We're going to see these kingly echoes in the life of Jesus, in the kingship and the reign of Jesus. Well, first of all, the first thing that we're going to see is in contrast to David, Jesus is going to be faithful. Jesus is never going to sin. He's going to delight, yes, as Psalm 19. He's going to say, your law to me is perfect. Oh, it's like the drippings of honey from the honeycomb. Jesus would say that about God's law. He would delight in God's law in his inner man. He would desire truth in the inward parts. That would be Jesus. He would be humble and holy. He would be blameless. He would be zealous for God's name. We would expect, in contrast to Saul, because of the reversal of God's ways, we would expect him not to look like much. We would expect that his rule would be preceded by rejection and suffering, as we've seen in David, which is true. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We should expect that God would vindicate this son. That God would set him on the throne. We should expect that he'll be a man of war with a sword in his hand. And we should expect that he's not going to establish the kingdom of peace until he's first put down every enemy of God's people. He will bring down the mighty and set his foot on the head of the serpent. He will take his place on David's throne forever and nobody will be able to take him off. That's what we expect of the son of the great King David. Isaiah 9, Isaiah prophesies this 750 years before Jesus comes. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. You, know, you fast forward to the end of the Bible and you hear God's people groaning under persecution, being picked off under Nero's empire. And it seems in Revelation chapter 5, you can turn there, it seems that history is locked in an endless cycle that spells defeat for God's people. Subjugation of God's people. We're trampled underfoot and the wicked are constantly seem to be exalted. And the next chapter of history, the one with the reign of King David, seems to always be looming out there in the future, inaccessible to us. And there's this moment where you find out that the seal of history is closed 
and one after another comes before in, in Revelation 5, and no one is found powerful enough and worthy to break the seal and to unlock the next chapter of history, namely the chapter of the glorious, peaceful, righteous reign of King David, of Jesus Christ. And notice what John the Revelator comes and says, the consummation of God's kingdom. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Why? Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, prophesied back in Genesis 49, 2,000 years, 4,000 years from now, backwards. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And alas, we arrive on the great day of the conquering of the kingdom of Jesus and the most glorious moment in history, the culmination of the entire unfolding story of the Bible. And we find Genesis 3.15's promise of a serpent-crushing seed is fulfilled. In, Gen in Revelation chapter 12, this is in your outline, 9 and 10, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. Notice how many times he's saying this. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice, loud voice in heaven saying, now, <laughs> now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The nations gather against God's anointed one. And this is what is said in Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Why? How does this lamb have the strength to conquer them? The lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the great son of David. His throne lasts forever. All right, well, next week we talk about the divided kingdom and on from there. So thanks for coming.